we're starting to get deeper, deeper into First John now. We're getting somewhere. He thought I was going too slow. But I'm covering a whole six verses today. <laughs> Rejoice, my children. <laughs> this is a uh, pretty well integrated section here, so it's really important to kind of cover it all together. So today we're going to be uh, bold. We're going to be countercultural. We're going to be subversive. We are going to violate the norms of our society. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right on. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just have to be scandalous. That's all there is to it. <laughs> so what are we going to do? We're going to talk about the most subversive thing in our culture. Truth. Truth. What people used to call the eternal verities. The truth. The things that have been true forever and always. That's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to say that in the realm of faith and religion, there is truth and there is error. That's also shocking to say that there is error. There are doctrines that are true and there are doctrines that are false. But, but how can you say something like that? That sounds like dogma. Why would anyone in a modern technological society believe dogma, right? You ever hear people talk like that? I do all the time. Why would people embrace dogma? Well, the truth is just about everybody embraces dogma of one kind or another. G.K. Chesterton said one time, he said, in truth, there are only two kinds of people. Those who accept dogma and know it and those who accept dogma and don't know it. <laughs> so people who don't know it are the people that absorb it from the culture and it becomes part of their thinking and these are absolute things that they believe but they're not really aware that that's happened to them. And I think actually a lot of people fall into that category. In other words, everybody has dogma, everybody. Dogma doesn't have to be a formal creed in a church. It's... Um, well, let me give you the dictionary de definition. Dictionary says dogma is a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. So an authority says here's a principle or some idea and it is absolutely true. That's a good definition. I like that definition. So let's, let's consider for a moment a, a man that is against dogma. Like a guy that would say, and I've heard things pretty similar to this, I don't care about religious teaching because God is unimportant to me. I have no use for dogma. It's actually said that way. And you could answer, but good sir, what you just told me is a dogma. That's, that's dogma. Only you're the authority for your dogma, and that is that you have no use for God. You, you're uninterested in him. God is unimportant in your life. So as with all dogma, that could be a true statement he's making that God is unimportant in his life or it could be a false statement. Now if he means, I don't care about God, maybe that's true, but what if God is important in his life? In other words, what if his very, every breath he takes is dependent on God's grace and mercy to him at any particular given moment? What about that? He might be all important to you, all important to you, and you not know it, right? It's your dogma that says he's unimportant. You might owe God your very existence. 
And denying it doesn't change the fact of it. It could be still true. So we all have dogma. We have ideas that we're committed to. Scientism is a, is a dogma. That if I say I can't know anything apart, I cannot know anything apart from what is measurable by science, which many people say, that's a dogma. That is dogma too. That is a dogma because perhaps we can know many things apart from what is measurable, measurable by science. In fact, philosophers have said for generations, many, many centuries, that we can know things through philosophy. Science does a really poor job explaining things like love, for example. Have you ever read evolutionary psychology books or guys? So in other words, they try to make every human behavior a, a fruit of evolutionary processes. So love becomes something way more meager than what we experience it as. A, a, a thing like honor. What is honor? How do you measure that scientifically? What is that? Where does it come from? And you should hear explanations for where honor comes from. It's like, uh, it's bizarre. Christianity, on the other hand, claims to be a faith that's revealed by God. Not discovered by science, not gained by intuition of any kind. It has the most robust understanding of love that anybody could even imagine. Christianity has the greatest definition of love because of what our Savior did for us. So we can know things because God has revealed them to us. Now, of course, if God is true and he has communicated to us, then his revelation is actually true. And anything opposed to it is actually false, right? Now, if someone says, I don't need dogma to understand the world, if they say that to you, you can say, okay, please explain the world to me then without dogma. Just explain it to me. Make no dogmatic statements. That's actually pretty hard to do unless you say the truth. So for me personally, understanding the world, why things are the way they are, why I am the way I am, that requires an actual explanation, right? I mean, I'm the kind of person that wants to know those things. So I ask myself, who or where do I find the best explanation for the world that I find myself living in? And there's a lot of options. There's science options, there's religious options, there's philosophical options, there's all kinds of things out there that would answer that question. So who is the best explanation? Well, by far it's Christianity, it's the Bible, by far, from my understanding. That's all I can use. Yes, it's a dogma. It's a dogma that one God made humans in his image, but it sure does make sense better than evolutionary psychology does. The Bible explains why humans care about things like truth and beauty and justice and goodness. No other creatures do. So we're made in God's image. We are persons who create. We're persons who reason. We're persons who appreciate. Not only does the Bible explain the vast superiority of human beings over the other animals, people in the animal kingdom it also explains why we constantly make a mess of things why are you so sinful science says there is no sin there's no wickedness there's no evil what about death is there life after death how do you know how do you know science says we don't there's no evidence so it, there is no life after death 
But isn't it interesting that it's a universal desire to live on after this life? Universal. I don't, doesn't mean every single person, but every culture that has ever lived on the world has an assumption and an expectation to live on after this life. Why is that? It's a universal desire. There are no cultures that exist without that hope in some form. Why? Why do people yearn for what doesn't exist if it doesn't exist? Think about it. Things that are universally desired by human beings, they all exist. Food, it exists because I desire it. Any craving you have that's significant, it actually exists somewhere. That's not to say somebody doesn't crave something that some person, but when everybody does, when, ev when entire civilizations, every civilization craves the same thing, every human being craves certain things, it, it exists. That's why it's in you to, to want that. It's a universal desire. Now, it is a fact, not a dogma, but a fact that a very old book, like this one, predicted that a redeemer for mankind would come and save us. And that ancient book actually predicts the day that he would show up. And that turns out that, that when it gives that actual chronology of when he's going to show up, that's the day that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem and was hailed as the Messiah, the future king of the world. And this book predicted many aspects of his life and his death, even specifically describing the way he died in great detail in Psalm 22, written a thousand years before it happened. That's not nothing. That's pretty amazing. Jesus came and remarkably, unsurprisingly, but remarkably, he is the most fascinating, the most compelling human being that has ever lived. Even more than a rock star. His wisdom, his compassion, his goodness are unsurpassed in the history of the world. However, true to human nature, he was hated. He was hated profoundly and cruelly put to death. And the book that predicted his coming <coughs> said he would be killed. And it describes in great detail how that happened. And then, now this is a fact, pay attention to what I'm calling a fact. Those who knew him best swore that he rose from the dead. That's a fact. And nobody that I know of historically disagrees with that. They said they saw him, they ate with him, they interacted with him numerous times over a 40-day period. They testified for their entire lives and went to their death saying that it was true that he was risen from the dead and that they knew they interacted with him. So it's, it's, a, it's kind of an odd coincidence that the most amazing and compelling human being that ever lived had this said about him by those who know him, his apostles, his friends. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians that 500 people were at one meeting with him after the resurrection. 500, that's a lot of people. And when Paul wrote that just 25 years after it happened, he said, most of those people are still alive. Now, that is a dogma that Jesus rose from the dead. We only have the testimony of world-changing witnesses. That's all we have. But that's a lot. That's a lot. 
Now these same men said his terrible death was for us. That it has an impact on us. That it has an astonishing purpose. Human beings are wicked. That's a fact. <laughs> and that our creator who is pure goodness poured out his hatred on sin, on human sin, poured it out on that man so that we could live forever. That's what the book says. And that's what the men that knew him proclaimed. And that universal desire to live on after this life is granted as a gift of his love through what that man accomplished. That's a dogma. I can't prove it scientifically. These are principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. I can't believe I said incontrovertibly successfully. How do we know it's true? How do we know it's true? Well, there's different ways to know something true is true. To me, and partially at least, it's true because it's too wonderful. It's so wonderful and beautiful. It's the most beautiful and sublime idea that I have personally ever encountered or read or heard in any source anywhere. That God would save me from the very real wickedness that is me by taking all the punishment that I deserve on himself. If my perfect creator did that for me, that's way too wonderful to just dismiss it. To easily dismiss it. And there's still that most amazing man himself. Just that alone. This most compelling human being that ever lived. Grabs my attention. But that he would do that for me. That is amazing. And that beautiful message about God's sacrificial love. It's deeply rooted in history. Witnesses. So all of that is pretty irresistible to me. It's amazing. But if it's not true. If that's not true, the world is a much darker place than I can almost deal with. If there's no hope in that, what is the world? But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, and all of that points to him being just that, I will not only accept it as true, I'm going to make him the center of my life. And if those who knew him well, that he chose as his instruments of information about him if they tell me other things about him I'm going to believe that too and that's what the New Testament is so we all have a choice about what we're going to believe so choose your dogma and on what basis are you going to choose your dogma I choose Jesus I choose him because he towers over all the other options and I've looked at all the other options that I'm aware of many many world views many many claims to truth I say, which one is the most perfect? And it's him. It's actually him. So I'm choosing him because all the means I have available to understand the world around me, he wins all of them. And I mean all of them. There isn't any lack in him. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So I believe him. So what else even begins to compare, right? I don't know of anything that compares. I really don't. So I'm fully persuaded. I believe the dogma, the truth claims of the Bible because in this particular case, the authority is vastly superior to all other sources of knowledge. Now let's talk about the other options because John is eager to address them. We're going to talk about John now. First John chapter 4. 
So remember, there are other claims to truth, right? There are many claims, other voices, contrary claims. And most troublesome, there's contrary claims about Jesus too out there. So verse one of chapter four, John calls these other spirits. That's what he calls these contrary claims about Jesus, other spirits. Anything contrary to the truth about Christ is a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. So, you know, the first century church had to deal with other spirits all the time. And every century has had them since then. We have them today. In abundance, other spirits. If you've been with us in our study, you know that John was writing to churches who experienced the reason for this letter is that there was a church or churches that experienced a loss of members who left to join a cult called Gnosticism, the Gnostics. They claimed to have the secret teaching of Jesus and they denied that Jesus was a savior from sin because sin isn't our problem. See, I, I can throw that one out right away because sin is my problem. They said our problem is ignorance. Well, I'm ignorant too, but sin is my problem. <laughs> that was the Gnostic claim. Jesus really came to give us secret knowledge to free us from this prison of our flesh so we could get out of our bodies. And that just happened to perfectly match contemporary Greek philosophy in the first century. That spirit is good and the physical world is evil. Now if that's true, that spirit is good and the physical world is evil, it was actually created evil by a kind of an evil God. That's the God of the Bible they would say. Then we're in trouble. Because that means that Jesus could not have become a man and could not have died on the cross. And that's what they believed. He was not a human being. They believe, we talked about this multiple times, but if you're new around here, I'm just going to explain it real quick. They believe that some kind of, some, the unknowable God emanated some kind of lesser God, and that's called the Christ. And the Christ found this man, Jesus, and kind of came upon him when he got baptized and taught secret wisdom through him to free us from the physical world. And then when he was about to be crucified, that Christ left him. So, Jesus is not God in human flesh as the Bible teaches. He's just this Christ being entity came upon him to reveal truth to the world. That was it. And it fit pretty well with the current philosophies of the day. And amazingly, some folks in the church bought into that and left and joined the Gnostics. It was attractive because Gnosticism fit what was going on at the time. It fit the philosophy of the day. Just like people today gravitate to whatever the current cultural mood is. Most people overwhelmingly accept whatever the cultural mood is. And that's always been the case. It always happens that way. But the Gnostics were wrong. That was not true. The creation is not evil. It is fallen and flawed, but God didn't create it that way. When God made the world, it was very good, he said. Even human beings were very good. But then man fell. So it's, we live in a good world gone bad because of choices that human beings made to bring sin into the world. And then God cursed the earth. So there's a lot of things that go horribly wrong here to wake us up. Something's wrong. You need to repent and come back to me and have a relationship with me. And someday I'll remake the world. 
And you know, it doesn't bother me. Like I said, that I'm ignorant nearly as much as it bothers me that I'm wicked. Gnosticism doesn't answer that question of wickedness. It denies it. So it doesn't answer my problem. But the popular philosophy, spirit is good, matter is evil. Some professing Christians were lured away from Christ by that philosophy. And that happens in every culture. It happens in every century. People try to co-opt Jesus or reimagine him in terms of whatever the current ideas are or the current philosophy is or the current morals are or the current science is. People are always doing that. It's been over a century now. Really, it's been longer than that that Western European countries in America adopted the belief system that the spiritual realm is a myth. We are biological machines. That's all we are. That's dogma. That's modern dogma. If you go to a university, 90% of your professors are going to teach that dogma. Some call this scientism because it's an ism. It's different than science. It's elevating science to a rule, a dogma of the nature of the universe, which is they can't prove. But they're just saying because you can't prove otherwise, it's got to be what it is. And so they took a good thing, which is the scientific method, that's how we've discovered so many wonderful things about God's creation, and it elevates that to a philosophy of reality that goes way beyond science itself. Science can't make that claim that there's no spiritual realm or anything other than the physical world. It can only measure the physical world. So in our culture, everything taken seriously, like by the government or the educational institutions and all of that, has to be explained and can only be explained in physical terms, material terms. It's called materialism as well. Scientism, materialism, it's kind of the same thing. Marxism is called dialectical materialism. Human beings are nothing other than biology. There's no spirit, there's no soul, there's nothing that lasts. And, and because that's the normal philosophy of our culture and the elite culture, the academic community, that materialism is real and there's nothing beyond that, there are fewer and fewer norms. Have you noticed that? Morals are sort of evaporated in multiple ways. And that's why the ground is constantly shifting under our feet and always, it's always in the one direction. It's always in the direction of being intolerant towards good. Always. Because human beings are wicked. So they're going to use that philosophy to undermine what is good. So the dominant philosophy for some time in the West has been materialism. That used to be, if you lived 50 years ago and you met people that didn't believe in Jesus, they probably would point to that as the reason for rejecting Christ. That would be the dominant sort of idea. Well, the incarnation of God, God becoming man, that's like a, that would be a miracle. And you know what? Science shows that miracles don't happen. So that couldn't be true. That used to be the main reason people rejected Christ. That's not the main peop reason people reject Christ today, I don't think, at least not in my experience. It's younger people especially, older people might still think that way. But younger people have a different thing. Things have changed among younger people where overwhelmingly it, it, the religion of the culture is absolute sexual freedom or sexual identity or whatever you want to call that. I, I wouldn't call it scientism because it's, it's actually, that's an anti-science philosophy. But it says that your moral quality as a human being, you will be judged morally. That will be measured by your complete acceptance of a philosophy of multiple genders and that any consensual sexual activity 
of any kind is good. It's healthy. It's all right. And those behaviors are condemned in the Bible. So guess who gets to be evil? Evil book. Evil book. Putting limits on people's sexual expression. That's the most common thing I hear from young people. Well, you guys say that this is wrong or this is wrong. And it can't be wrong. Why can't it be wrong? Well, because, uh, you know, the people like feel that way. So the rejection of Jesus isn't because of the miraculous anymore. It's that Jesus himself fails to be good in our world since he taught a very strict monogamy based on the creation of human beings, which is one man and one woman. That, he, to believe that, Jesus is so out of fashion. He's so not with it. He's so absent, the understanding of our times. That's where we are. And that's really the main reason. That's the thing I most often hear. Well, how come you people condemn this or that activity? It kind of makes sense because sexual freedom would be, it makes sense that sexual freedom would be the last belief system in a culture because it's been shown pretty clearly that every civilization that collapses on its own, the end of it is always a complete undoing of whatever sexual morals they had. They're usually different in different places in some ways, but like some people might have multiple wives and all those kind of things. But all of that unravels at the end. That's just universally true. It just happens every single time. Somebody studied like 48 major civilizations and that was a factor in, it, 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 it's not that it caused it, but that was the, that was the sign of the end when sexual things just went crazy. So that's what we're experiencing right now. And that's why you're seeing over and over again in the news the sexualization of children by major culture, cultural institutions. They just came out with that big thing with that huge, super expensive elite uh, fashion industry thing that put out these child pornography kinds of stuff. And they found out that the guy that owns that big fashion thing actually produces pornographic stuff for about with children that I can't even describe to you. It's, it's unbelievable. But um, that's, that, we're spiraling down. One thing I can tell you for sure, it will get worse. Absolutely, it'll get worse. So be ready for that. But in every age, there's always some trend or worldview or cultural drive that is contrary to Christ. And so this current situation is, it's so weird and so perverse and so dark that it's really hard not to believe there's a spiritual root behind it, you know, some kind of dark roots. So John says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. There you go. Don't believe every spirit. Now he calls them spirits. He might mean demonic spirits who actively promote anything that draws men away from God. Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, decades before John wrote this letter, Paul warned of the coming Gnostic movement. It was almost a prophetic warning about it. 1 Timothy 4 1 he said, the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, the next generation, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That's 1 Timothy 4.1. That's exactly what happened when the Gnostic movement arose. So if indeed there are ideas or belief systems or doctrines or dogmas that are contrary to the Lord, they are from or at least pawns of 
dark spiritual powers. That's what Paul said and I think that's what John is saying here. So back to verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but here's what you should do. So start paying attention. Test the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. So part of being a Christian is to test the spirits. So every claim that's to explain God or God's will or the truth of the world in some way has to be tested. What are you going to test it by? What are you going to use to measure? When you're testing something to see if it's right, you have to have some kind of standard, right? Some kind of rule by which its authenticity is going to be measured. And you have to do that because many false prophets have gone out into the world, he says. There were many then when John wrote this and there are many now. You know, America is sort of the birthplace of false religions and cults. I think that's because we had religious freedom pretty early on before a lot of other countries did. But uh, it's kind of in our system. No state church. So anything can happen in America spiritually or religiously, right? Especially in the 19th century. The 1800s was a time of cults just bursting across America. All kinds of things. And a lot of them have stuck around. You know, 150 years later, 200 years later, they're still going. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, the Unitarian Church, the New Thought, Theosophy, uh, Christadelphians. The Shakers aren't around anymore, which is too bad because they were more fun. But on and on. All of them were started by somebody who claimed they had a new revelation or a new insight or a unique relationship with God or they received a special calling for these times. All that kind of stuff going on. And each, each one of those and many more in their way had to redefine Jesus to fit their new ideas. They had to say something different about him. So they rejected the biblical witness and went in their own way. Now I think when I think about the test for prophets or the religious teacher, you know, all these Bible verses come to mind like Isaiah chapter 8 verse 20. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light. Isaiah 8.20 says that. In Acts chapter 17, remember when Paul went to Berea to preach the gospel? He went to the synagogue and he's preaching the gospel to the Jews and they took out their Bibles and started measuring what he was saying. And he loved it. He loved that they did that. In fact, Luke calls them more noble. More noble. Why? Because they were examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Acts 17.11. They tested what Paul said by scripture, which is what exactly the right thing to do. They were putting the apostle Paul himself to the scripture test, and he thought they were great doing that. But John has a much more narrow test. In 1 John, he's thinking Gnostics and the, and the problem that just happened. So he's narrowing the test to one specific doctrinal area, and that's the incarnation of Christ. So if you get this one wrong, you're going to be wrong forever and always about everything as regards the faith. So this one's essential. That's what he's saying. Now remember, they taught that Christ never took on human flesh, right? That the Christ entity came down upon this man, Jesus, who had already lived his life and was already 30 years old or something. So that, that entity would never become human and be in the womb of a woman and get born and have to grow as a real man. God, God is pure and good and the flesh is evil, so he could never do that. That idea is abhorrent to our philosophy. 
So John, as clear as he can be in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, he says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. That's pretty strong language. Why is he, why is he being so strong about it? Because this is a core doctrine of the faith that you cannot lose. The incarnation. You know, carne, right? When you go order carne asada, what's in there? Meat, right, flesh, right? So that's incarnation means God becoming truly f- human flesh, taking into himself true, not just appearing like a man, like an angel that looks like a man or something like that, true human flesh. He was born in this world. John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and then a little bit later it says, and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. The word was God. The word became flesh. That is the incarnation. The enfleshment of God. That's Christianity. There's a great scholar named C.H. Dodd. And he wrote um, this. He said the fundamental doctrine of Judaism is monotheism. No utterance, however inspired, which contradicts the principle of monotheism can be accepted as true prophecy. The fundamental doctrine of Christianity is the incarnation. No utterance, however inspired, which denies the reality of the incarnation can be accepted as true prophecy. That's what John's saying. So it doesn't matter how educated somebody is, how clever they are, how eloquent they are, how thoughtful they are, how many degrees they have. If they deny the incarnation that God became true man, they are not to be granted a place as one of us. They are not Christian. So if you deny that Jesus Christ is true God, become true man, you are not a Christian. That's why all these great Christmas songs Talk about the incarnation. That's the moment when it happened. That's the celebration of that. Think about Charles Wesley's great hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If you've seen Charlie Brown Christmas, I know you've heard it. (laughs) And if you sing it with your nose in the air, then you've got it perfectly. Charlie Brown Christmas. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's how the song goes, right? Emmanuel, what does that word mean? God with us, God with us. That's why all those cults we mentioned earlier are not Christian. And why John says they they stand with the Antichrist, yeah, but you're saying dogma. You bet your soul we are. We, we are saying dogma. The dogma is a principle laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. And this is it. God became man to achieve our salvation. John is the authority, personally chosen as an apostle by Jesus himself, making John the highest spiritual authority on earth. It's the spirit of God who speaks through him. There's no arrogance about this. This is just the truth. And by embracing the truth, we overcome all the deception 
demonic doctrines, man-made theories that flood the world. So in verse 4 of 1 John 4 here, here's the key to our understanding. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, the deceivers, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. It's the Holy Spirit in you that lets you know that these things are true. You see, there's a way to know, have knowledge that has nothing to do with the physical world. If the Holy Spirit is revealing truth to your heart, that's true knowledge. It's just not measurable by science, for example. So the you here is all Christians, the simplest person and the super educated person that are Christians. How do we overcome false teachers, these phony prophets? How do we discern what was true about Jesus? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So that's the spirit of God. The spirit of the Lord doesn't have any rivals in the world. Did you know that? So when he brings the truth to light in us, we see through all the false notions of men. Their information comes from a totally different source, a dark one. So finding the truth about God, you know, it's not a salad bar where you pick and choose the things you like and leave the things you don't. It's also not a potluck where everybody brings their own beliefs and we just all rejoice in each other's strangeness. I mean, that works for food. And it works for a world religions class. That would be an appropriate place to bring all those things. But it's a completely inner, irrational. It's irrational to find truth about God that way. Just think about it. You can't combine completely contrary ideas about God and say they're all true. That's illogical by definition. And logic is, well, actually that's part of the creation that's immaterial. Science can't account for the existence of logic in our heads because that's not something you can measure. But it's something we know. The truth is God has revealed himself to the world in Jesus Christ. We are then talking about two different sources of religious claims. Or we could say two different sources of world views. One source has no authority and the other source has all authority. The one source is a world that's already in rebellion against God and the other source is God himself. So verse 5, John, John identifies the source of the false prophets doctrines. He says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. Notice how the world's a big part of that verse. <laughs> Three times he says world. So that refers to the fallen world of men who are estranged from God inventing explanations as seem best to them or that strikes their fancy or that other dark forces are directly revealing to them or they just want to believe certain things that calm their fears for living or whatever. Their whole perspective though is from the world. That's the source of it, not God. So everything they say is from the world and no surprise, the world listens to them. So lost teachers invent stories or ideas to sell to lost hearers. And they're speaking the same language. Because they say have the same source. So in verse 6 we have the direct claim to absolute certain truth. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. It's exactly the same thing. It's just on the other side. They're from the world. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. 
That's the test of orthodoxy right there. Do you listen to God or the world? Do you listen to God as revealed in his word or the world? The apostles are sent by God, having received their teaching from God. So the people who know God, listen to them. And the spirit that dwells in us affirms that. It says, yes, that's true. Why did, why, did, you, ever know, did you ever read the Bible? I did this. I read the Bible before I was a Christian and I couldn't get it. After I read the Bible, it's still a hard book, but oh, yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa. Anybody have that experience? It just suddenly comes alive, and it's like, that's the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of God. So that means the Spirit is informing our hearts that it's true. That means if people left the church to become Gnostics, they didn't know God. That's what John is saying. They found something attractive about Christianity in sort of a worldly way that brought them around us and were part of us and hung out with us and worshiped with us, brought them into the church. But since they chose the world's dogma in place of what God says, they were not of us. They're not born again. And that takes us back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they are all not of us. 1 John 2, 19. So clear. There's only, there's only two ways to go. There's the apostolic doctrine of the incarnation of God in Christ. And there's everything else that has its source in the world or dark places that keep people from Christ. So John can say with confidence in the last part of verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's how you can know. Who do you listen to? Who is your authority? That's how you know. That tells you who you belong to or what you belong to. So God came into this world as true man to reveal his will to show us his incredible love and to rescue us from his wrath by paying the entire penalty for our sins. And you should build your life on that. Well, you should build your life on him because Jesus is living on Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is the proper foundation for all knowledge. You know, in Amer American culture, what are the, what's the greatest school in America, the greatest university? Harvard, you silly goose. <laughs> that's the way Mr. Howell would say it. <laughs> Schools like Harvard University, uh, that's where the elites are trained by our best minds. At least that's the way we used to think of it. At one time, Harvard's foundation was the Bible. And then in the 1800s, it started to switch towards scientism. And now it's abandoning scientism and going towards woke theology, which is a doctrine, a, a religious doctrine. The motto of Harvard University today is Veritas. It's on their little logo thing. Veritas is Latin for truth, right? Many years ago, Harvard's motto was Veritas pro Christo et Ecclesia. Truth for Christ and the church. That was its original motto. And they had a rule book for students. And this is the second rule. I want to read it for you and then we'll kind of close out. It says, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is 
to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore, to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let every one seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Christ is the foundation of all sound learning and knowledge. That's a dogma. It's also true. The question isn't whether or not something is dogma. The question is whether or not it's true. Theology matters. Dogma matters. God is dogmatic about himself. And that, of course, is his right, being God. His people... Being dogmatic is actually a love for the truth. And it's more than that. It is love to everybody that doesn't know God to hold before them the great doctrine of the incarnation and what it means. That's what love is. To take this truth, this dogma, this true dogma and to hold it before people so they can find reconciliation with God through that most amazing of all men who died and rose again. God became a sinless man to save sinful men. And as redeemed sinners ourselves, we should share that with other people. It's a great time of the year to do that because everybody's sort of paying attention to the incarnation. Whether they know it or not, it's probably being played in music in the store. Or it's on CBS for once a year where Linus gets up and tells the whole gospel story. And Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Wise men still seek him, so share the truth. Share the great truth. Let's pray. God, it is your world. It's a world in rebellion against you. But your love is so great that you became man. You endured our hatred. You endured being pinned with nails to a cross of wood for us. Bearing in your body the suffering that we justly deserved only as true man could you do that and so we celebrate this every year the incarnation the great revelation of your love for sinners may that love always astound us and bring forth our grateful hearts by the spirit let us know what is true and what is false we pray in your name amen